On today's Money with Friends podcast, negative interest rates are those in your future. And by the way, what are negative interest rates in the first place? Does that mean the bank gives you money? Maybe not. On the other hand, let's also talk about financial regrets. What things do a bunch of seniors regret not having done earlier? Are the things that you regret not having done earlier with your money? That's today with our special guest for Money for the Rest of Us, my friend David Stein. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Money with Friends from Detroit, Michigan, where we make the Stacky Benjamin Show in my mom's half-finished basement. I'm Joe Saul And from Idaho, this is David Stein. And together today, we have taken two headlines ripped from the financial press. David's comes to us from MarketWatch, mine is from Kiplinger. And we will not only read them like some other podcasts do, we'll actually dive into them and talk about what they have to do with your money, your wallet, and your future. Today's episode is brought to you by Tiller. Tiller is your financial life in a spreadsheet automatically updated each day. Only Tiller imports your daily spending, financial transactions, and account balances directly into Google Sheets and Microsoft Excel. You pick. If you want to kick the tires for two months instead of the one month they offer, if you just go directly to Tiller, here's what you do. Head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Tiller. That's stackingbenjamins.com forward slash T-I-L-L-E-R. All right, David, we got you back. Thank you for coming back to save oh, another it's episode. Super to be here. <laughs> the uh, uh, this whole thing about negative interest rates is pretty interesting, and I've got a, I've got a um, a conspiracy theory. I'm not big on conspiracy theories generally, but I do have one that I can't wait to run by you. But unfortunately, we've picked to do mine first. So, you ready mm-hmm. to do this thing? Let's do it. All right. Let's see which friend is going to help us kick this off. This is Andy from Derby, Vermont. Money headlines explain three days a week. That means you're tuned in to Money with Friends. All right. Uh, We're going to start with the one I picked from uh, Kiplinger. I wish I'd done this years ago. All too common financial regrets. This is written by Lisa Brown, CFP. Lisa writes, I was recently enjoying dinner with my husband and our three children at a local country club. It was a relaxed and comfortable setting, the perfect place to spend a weekend with the people I love after a long work week. As I sat across the table from my family enjoying the special time, I thought, I wish I'd done this years ago. I was raised in a small community in upstate New York. My parents are both teachers, so joining a private club wasn't ever a remote consideration growing up. When my husband suggested the idea, I wasn't in favor of spending the money, thousands of dollars for annual membership fees. But after considering it for several weeks and making certain we could afford it, I relented. Now, years later, I clearly owe him an enormous apology. For starters, The amount of personal joy we've experienced, new friendships we've made, the memories we're creating have more than paid for any membership. On top of that, I've been able to entertain potential clients in an informal environment close to home. But the phrase, I wish I'd done this years ago, is the same one I hear most often from new clients once we've had an initial meeting and developed a long-term plan to grow their wealth. It's not a surprise. After all, once a person or couple has a clear plan to help them achieve financial independence, their relief is palpable. The benefits of their decision are so clear, they only wish they put a plan together years ago. By the way, David, when I was a financial planner, I heard that all the time. We should have done this earlier. Uh, There are three things, by the way, that uh, she points to that are three take-homes 
in this piece. And I want to walk through these. The first one is know the amount of money you need for financial independence. Most people wish they'd known that one sooner. If once you know how much you need, well, I'll just read the piece. Most people save and save and save some more, but they don't really know if they have enough stocked away. They need to understand how much is enough, whether it's for their own retirement or their children's college education. Once that question's answered, the person or couple has the freedom to spend the rest of their paycheck and not feel guilty about spending money on the extras. Number two, don't work too hard. Many parents miss their children's ball games, dance recitals, and other important events, fearing that less work will put their financial future at risk. Some people don't believe they'll be as successful in business or get the next promotion if they work fewer hours. And then she goes on to say, I've seen clients with solid financial plans delay retirement for years because they're afraid to get off the hamster wheel. When they finally do retire, they're burnout. They have health issues. Their kids are off living on their own and there's regret. Last one is get a will done. My clients are well-educated, well-read, and travel around the world, but I'm never surprised here that a new client doesn't have a will or it hasn't been updated in a decade or more. More than any other financial issue, this is one that creates the most guilt and embarrassment until it's done. Once the process is complete, clients are so relieved to know their estate plan is buttoned up. Uh, next up, discuss money with with your parents. I'm not going to go into these these ones as much. Uh, and then last is talk to your adult children about money too. Those are those are the five that she has. I want to start off the conversation here. I love this idea, David, of earlier on knowing what you need for financial independence and just spending the rest because you've seen it. I've seen it. People either don't save and they increasingly just feel more and more and more and more guilt or on the other side, they save every dollar and then they realize later that they didn't need nearly as much, as much money as they saved. Well, and then there's a third category. It's the people that don't even add up what they own. In other words, I had a member of my website that for years he put off figuring out how much money he actually had. And then when he did, he realized he had way more than enough he needed to retire. Yeah. And so we have to know what the numbers are. You have to look at it. I, you know, I typically look at it once a month and just to kind of see what my net worth is and what's changed. Look at the budget once a month. It, you know, it doesn't have to be something necessarily daily. I mean, there, there's apps. You mentioned Tiller that can certainly help do it daily. But at least on a monthly basis, I think one should kind of see kind of a monthly check-in. We used to do this in when I was a financial planner. We do this, David, in our client meetings. Uh, my financial planning software would build yearly milestones, and I would break those down to six-month milestones about where we had to be to get to the numbers. So we'd start off with you know, X amount of money is the amount that we think we need based on, you know, lifestyle that people want assumption, you know, there's still a bunch of assumptions, but then we'd work back to today and year by year where the portfolio needed to be. And I loved opening up meetings with that conversation because we would have a much better conversation than if we talk about what's going on with the Federal Reserve, what's going on with the stock market, what's going on with the government. Instead, we taught, we would start off the conversation with, are we ahead or are we behind? And if we're behind, are we behind because the portfolio is not working the way it should? And if the portfolio is working the way that it should, then, then clearly we need to save more money. Uh, and if we need to save more money, where is that going to come from? And if we can't save more money, do, well, and actually we don't even have to save more money, do we? We can say we're behind. Do we want to adjust the goal where we spend less money 
uh, after financial independence? Do we push back financial independence to a later date? Do we um, do we consider saving, you know, uh, uh, more money now. Like there's several different things that we could do. If we're ahead, we can do other things. We could take additional trips and enjoy the extra money. Now we could retire earlier. We could retire at the same date with more money. We could just take a hiatus from save. We could do all kinds of different things once we knew what that number was. Well, absolutely. I mean, not looking at the numbers doesn't make them worse or, or, or better. Right. But <laughs> you'll get a better plan if you actually look at, look at the numbers on a periodic basis. Yeah, absolutely. Number two is don't work too hard. And this, this one reminded me of, um, I had a friend who was a financial planner who was divorced and his kids wouldn't talk to him. And he said, he said, you know, early in his career, all he did was work and work and work and work. And he would always tell his family that he had to work. And he said, one day he came home realizing he made a huge mistake and he didn't really know his wife. He didn't really know his kids. And he goes, <laughs> the whole time I thought I was doing them the right thing. I was doing the right thing by bringing home more and more and more money. I was losing track of my entire family to the point that I was irrelevant. That's just horrible. Oh, right. Right. I mean, that cat's in the cradle, you know, my right. kids always sing that song to me. Just Do uh, they really? Just to, yeah. Just, you know, kind of <laughs> dig it in now, but I, in jest, I've spent a lot of time. I mean, I telecommuted for many, many years before most people telecommuted. So I was home a lot when I wasn't traveling and then I quit work at 45. So, you know, I've been able to spend a lot of time with kids. The other thing though, I, I, she implied people, you know, they don't retire soon enough, but I, I think I know too many bored retirees. So Mm -hmm. I I think for most of us, it's best to, to construct a life that you can live like you're already retired in, you know, you're able to spend the quality time with family, but also maintain some business activity, work activity well into your 70s, just because people need something to engage their brain. Some some project on an ongoing basis other than watch TV and or Netflix and play golf. It's funny, uh, Cheryl, my spouse and I were having this conversation earlier today, David. We were talking about how she is a partner who still is working, who is 92 years old. And, mm-hmm. and at 92, people keep telling him, they're like, when are you going to retire? And he said, why would I retire? Like, this is, this is what I like to do. Am I bad at it? And, and he's great at uh, it. Right. He still is. Good. No, it makes perfect sense. I think more and more people are going to do that. I took an Uber, uh, my Uber driver in San Diego the other day was 71. He was driving Uber part-time. His, his primary job was working for American airlines on their flight crew, like on the ground, on the tarmac, still moving bags. And he was, he was happy. He was happy. I mean, he kind of jokes, yeah, I can't afford to retire, but you know, he's got a nice pension and, and, but he likes to work. No, that's, uh, I, I'm with you. Uh, I saw too many people retire from something and not to something, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, third one on here. Uh, uh, that one is, uh, don't work too hard. I like that number. The next one is, uh, get a will done. I don't know about you, but when I finished my will, I didn't realize before I'd finished my will how awesome I would feel after I finished my will. I thought the whole time, I'm like, no, I don't want to do this. I don't want to, you know, I'm going to die a long time from now. And, and once I, once I finished my will, I remember walking out of the attorney's office with Cheryl and both of us remarking about how we felt way better, like way, 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 way better, thousand times better than I thought I would. No, absolutely. I mean, we, we felt the same way. 
course, now you, now you have to update the will. So, <laughs> so you know, not only do you you procrastinate doing the will, but then you know, as your kids get older, then it's like, oh shoot, I should really update that will. Yeah, which we've not done. Uh, we've got, we do this live in front of a Facebook audience. I'm glad we've got a nice group of people hanging out with us today. Uh, a lot of people talking about regrets that they had. And uh, Amika is with us. And Amika says, I wish I'd started investing earlier in life. I learned the hard way. Man, David, that's a lot of people. Uh, it really is. It, it really is. And I mean, the only way to, to overcome that is you save more. You learn how to be a better investor. And then, you know, for most of us, you know, most people aren't going to retire at a traditional retirement age. So it gets back to what we talked about earlier, finding a way to generate income well into your retirement years in a way that you enjoy and that engages you. What is it, though, about people always starting late? I mean, I know that it's on one side, it's we think we have other priorities, right? That was completely me. Luckily, I was able to sell a business to catch up with a lot of people, though. Is it also that they think it's not that fun, you know, and once you start investing and you realize it can actually be kind of fun to do that, that, uh, you start investing more. I think it's part of it. I think when you're starting out, I mean, you're, it, it takes a lot of money to live, right. And, and median wages are down. So it takes some sacrifice to save for retirement. And oftentimes we don't, we don't want to sacrifice that way. Right. And you guys, you get a raise. I mean, the easiest way is as you get a raise is just start plowing more and more. I mean, my view is most people should be saving 20% of their income, at least including any type of company match that they get. And that, I mean, that does take some, some sacrifice in lifestyle design. Uh, Melissa says seeking, seeing a financial planner last week was quite liberating. It's funny. I remember in my office back when I was, and I haven't been a practicing advisor for 10 years, but when I was an advisor, I would have clients say that all the time after, you know, as, as we're walking out, they would always, they, they would always say, well, one guy put it very well. Um, he said, Joe, seeing you feels like going to the dentist before I get here. And it kind of is like the dentist. Cause after I leave the dentist, I'm always happy. I went, <laughs> but, it was, but it, right. it was, I'm like, I don't know if I like that or not, Arnie. No, <laughs> I don't like that. <laughs> Dennis was way worse. <laughs> that's, that's, that's true. But, but I, but I also know that feeling. Uh, so if you feel like that, but you know what, it doesn't have to be a financial planner, just having a third party that you're talking about your money with outside scheduling time, actually, frankly, just scheduling time to talk about your money. There's a project mm -hmm. I've been putting off for quite a while, uh, that Cheryl and I've been putting off, uh, yesterday we scheduled an hour to just address it. Like both she and I, it was something we didn't want to do. We sat down, we did it together. You know how awesome that felt? Just scheduling oh, the time right. felt great. Kathy says, uh, please make a will. We just dealt with this last year with our parents. It's hard enough to deal with their death and try to figure out what to do with all their stuff when you do have a will. Oh boy. Yeah. It, it, dying without a will, David, not, uh, not good. No. Uh, Melissa wants a job working for an airline, free flights for life. There you go. Uh, and Kathy also says, I wish I would have went to work for a company offered retirement savings way sooner than I did. That's a question. People always look at benefits, David, but looking at the, uh, excuse me, don't look at benefits. They look at the amount they're being paid. Benefits can equal a huge amount of, uh, a huge amount of money. Oh, sure. Between retirement and healthcare. I mean, it, it, it makes a big difference, right? 
the last two on this piece, discussing money with your parents and talking to your adult children about money. Have you had those conversations? We do. We do. Well, parents, I mean, I typically, I'm meeting with them, you know, they're back in Ohio, I'm in Idaho, but I, I, every six months, at least I meet with them and my stepdad, like we go through the numbers all the time. He reminds me where the will is, where everything is. So, I mean, every six months he reminds me. So it's important. And now, you know, we're, we're having some, some more challenging discussions because my mom has dementia. And so that, that brings additional financial challenges as well as, you know, life care type challenges with our kids. You know, it's a little easier because grew up with them, you know, much more. And, you know, we've always had a very open relationship in terms of money and where the money's going and where we spend it on. And, you know, now that they're adults, they're, they're learning to be independent. With, with some families, it makes it harder because you grew up with them. I know, you know, but if you had an open relationship, like for us, it's easier, but I talked to some friends of mine, they're like, I can't talk to my kids about money. I, you know, can't talk to them at all. Oh no, it. it has to start, it has to start young, right? Yeah. It has to be. In fact, I remember my my son was dating a, a girl from the Bronx and, you know, she came out for a weekend and she was a little freaked out because she felt like we talked about money too much. And, uh, and you know, I'm in the investment business and, and our finance. So and it wasn't and maybe we was a little over the top, but we we talk about money. My sister had a had a boyfriend who uh, came to. Uh, spend the holidays with us. And over Christmas, you know, when, when my brother and sister and my parents get together, which, which, you know, only happens four or five times a year, max, uh, if that probably three times a year, we, uh, we play tons of board games. And, uh, when, when they were breaking up, this guy told my sister said, your family's too competitive. What, what, what are you talking <laughs> about? It's like, everything is a contest. Everything is a contest. And my sister's like, well, dude, we don't really care about the contest. We just like sitting around and talk and play a All game. Right. He's like, yeah, I don't like that. I, I don't know. It's funny. Thought about the same thing. So people got creeped out by our family. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> I mean, maybe. that's important when you marry, you're marrying somebody's family. So it's a good to spend a lot of time with their family before you get married. That's right. Uh, your takeaway here. Uh, my takeaway is... Don't join a country club. I, I thought that was a really interesting. Like that's what she regrets. I didn't. No, she. But she does six it. figures oh, a year on a country club sooner. membership sooner. Yeah, so right. uh, I, yeah, I was an interesting example that she uh, she brought up. I did too, but but I thought it was apropos only because it's something that you know if we if we're judgy about people at all, you know, frugal people will judge joining a country club a lot go, wow, that's wasteful money. But for her, it was a really, really good thing. So in that way, I thought it was very appropriate. Yeah, well, it was, it, it was unexpected. So yeah. Right. Got my, got my, got my attention. <laughs> my, uh, my, my takeaway from this is, you know, you can, you can regret all day, but don't live in the rearview mirror, live, live forward. Mm -hmm. So you're not, uh, not living regret. I can't stand that when I sit around and I worry about stuff that I should have done instead of doing the next thing. All right, you've got the next one. Why did you pick this piece, David? Because the one I suggested you had already used. So we're <laughs> going to talk about this. Uh, and this is a topic that uh, is front and center. And I'm going to podcast a little bit on this week, some ramifications of it. But the, the article, as you mentioned, is on Market Watch. It's titled 
negative treasury yields in the U.S. could become a reality, PIMCO analyst says. And the author's Mark DeCambre, and he's really quoting from uh, a gentleman named Joaquim Fell. He's an economic advisor at PIMCO. PIMCO is a big, big asset manager, big bond managers for Bill Gross, the, the ex-bond king, the fallen bond king, bond king used to work. But uh, he points out that, uh, in, uh, for, well, right now it's $15 trillion of government bonds around the world are have a negative yield. And, and by negative yield, the way bonds work, as interest rates go up, the value of bonds go down and, and vice versa, versa. And so as interest rates have gone or prices of bonds have gone up and up and up, the Essentially, they're now yielding negative. So, especially in Germany, the 30-year Treasury bond in Germany is now priced to have a negative yield. So, if you buy this bond, you're guaranteed to lose money, and it it's a kind of a scary situation. And so, in this blog post, Fell kind of puts why he believes it is. And here's his quote: "The two most important secular drivers are demographics and technology." Rising life expectancies increases desired savings, while new technology are capital saving and are becoming cheaper. What he what he means is is that as more and more households want to save money for retirement, and let's take the the fire movement, the financial independence, where you know, perhaps they're saving fifty percent. That there's a glut of savings. That so many people want to save that it's pushing down interest rates, and and really it's called a time preference. He's suggesting. That you know, in a normal world, we w- would rather spend today and not save for the future, and so and people are willing to to lend and to borrow. And he says it's sort of it's kind of an upside down world where the preference is, according to him, for saving. And as more and more people want to save, the the impact of that is it it pushes down interest rates to where they're effectively negative for twenty five percent of the bond market has a negative yield, which is some, it's ludicrous, but that's the environment that we're living in currently. I got a, I got a question for you about that. So you say there's, so there's so many savers and, and what I get from that is that because, and, and there's some flaw in my thinking, but these, these bonds get offered at, uh, at uh, uh, auction. So what you're saying is there's so many people that want to buy these bonds I think that that drives interest rates lower and lower and lower because they're getting the best price that they can mm-hmm. on their money. Um, but but then when we look at like the fire movement, the fire movement's not saving into treasuries though. Like how is that? How how do we get from the fire movement to treasury yields being below zero? Well, that was probably a jump. But I mean, right. most most people, maybe us, not the fire movement. Let's say retirees. Yes. That are those close to retirement, they're saving more. And and you know, the flip side is companies aren't you know necessarily investing in new capital projects. So they're they don't, there's not so much, you know, their demand to borrow isn't necessarily that great either. And so it's a little, I mean, it's his particular view, Fels's view is it's just sort of one viewpoint. Another viewpoint is interest rates are so low because central banks around the world are keeping them low, right? They're setting their yeah. policy rate low. Japan, Europe, you know, they basically 
commercial banks that store money at the Japanese Central Bank, at the European Central Bank, they have to pay to store money there. So they're being charged negative rates, and that's just kind of flowing through the system. But you know, the point is, as, as investors, is you know we're not earning as much, right? I mean, the U.S. is unusual right now because on cash, and the Federal Reserve just cut interest rates, but you can still get to 2.25 percent on your cash in in the U.S. You you don't get you lose money in Japan. Yeah. You lose money in Germany, and it. It's a really, it's kind of a scary time because nobody's really quite sure why, what's driving that. But the reality is we end up paying because we're not going to earn as much. And, and what he's saying is, you know, there isn't anything keeping the U.S. from also having negative rates to where, you know, back after the financial crisis or even up to 2010, 2011 rates were 0% on cash. I mean, just on cash, but it could get to the point where it's 0%, the negative on three-year, four-year, five, even the 10-year treasury. And so the ramifications of that for individual saving, for pension plans that have a hurdle rate that they need to achieve in order to pay their future benefits, right? it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. No, it's a huge challenge. I'm, I'm, I'm also wondering this. I'm wondering that, uh, and here's my conspiracy theory. Uh, well, actually, before we get to my conspiracy theory, let me ask you one more thing about this, which is we keep hearing people around the globe, though, not saving enough money. And if if this gentleman from PINCO is talking about there's so many savers flooding these markets, which is purely the case, is it really partially that people don't understand how bonds work? Because as an example, I would have uh, people come into my office when I used to be a financial planner. And they'd show me their bonds and they would say, hey, I've got this bond. It's paying me a 6% yield. And then I would ask them more closely if they bought the bond when it was first issued or did they buy it on the open market? Of course, you know where this is headed. They bought it in the open market. And if par is 100 bucks, they bought it for 104 And so their yield is really a lot less than they think it is. And, and I saw this all the time, David, where people didn't understand that they were guaranteed to not make nearly as much or in some cases lose money. Is it just people not being educated about how bonds work? No, I mean, I think people buying individual bonds, they, I mean, you, you go to the broker, you go to Schwab, it shows the yield of maturity. They ought to, they ought to know. I mean, there's enough technology now when you're buying bonds that you can see what the yield is. Well, that's what blew me away because even then, ten years ago, there was enough. There was because I would that's show crazy, them. Right? I would well, show they them. Have been buying them. I mean, the, the yeah. first rule of investing is be able to explain what it is and what drives the return. And so, if you own a bond and you can't figure out that the yield to maturity is the best estimate of what your return is going to be over your holding period, then yeah, you shouldn't be buying. But I, I think this this idea of a, a global savings glut is, I mean, it gets back to income inequality, right? It, you know, households, if we look at the number of people, perhaps they're not saving enough, but because income is getting more and more mm. concentrated, certainly the high net worth are, are saving uh, large amounts of money, and that's contributing to this this idea of the global savings glut. Yeah. You know, and I'm not you know entirely convinced that's what it is. That's just one view. I think there's also some some credence to the idea that rates are low because the, the central bank's policy is keeping them low and people are willing to buy those bonds at those low yields because they think they're going to fall further because you still I mean, if 
they're negative and they go more negative, then you still can get the price appreciation. And perhaps you, we just have more speculators in bond thinking things are going to, they're going to keep getting lower. And that brings up my conspiracy theory, which is this we're seeing in, 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 in some countries, right? Um, at least one of the Nordic countries uh, talking about going to a zero cash, you know, a cashless society. If we look at negative interest rates combined with a cashless society, is this government and banks being too closely interrelated or, 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 or bankers lobbies being too influential? Because the way I look at it, interest rates in a cashless society, banks don't want to pay out much money at all. And if we can drive interest rates to negative, then I can still charge a healthy amount for borrowers, but on savings, people hand me money. I don't have to, I don't have to, to, there's no cost on that money for a bank. And in a cashless society, you drive more and more people there. And I'm not a, I'm not a conspiracy theory guy, but I start thinking about cashless society and negative interest rates. And I think that's hell for the individual, but it seems to me that's not a horrible place for a bank. Well, you bring up an interesting point. I actually talked about this in my podcast last week about gold and it's episode 263. And I referenced a blog post by the IMF and a study that they did. And the fact that currency exists, notes and bills is an impediment to negative interest rates. Because instead of putting your money in the bank to lose money, if you can hold it in cash, well, at least you're not losing money. Right. And, and their proposal was they come up with something called e-money that the central banks would issue. And then when you would go to your bank and want to deposit your actual currency, you would pay a penalty. You wouldn't get as good of rate on uh, exchange <laughs> rates. So I, yeah, there is a movement to get rid of cash. It sure sounds to and, me like bankers really want to extract more money from individuals here. Well, I don't think it's the bank. I think it's the central bankers wanting to, you know, have all these policy tools and this, the, the fact that currency exists makes it harder to implement negative interest rates. And, and to do their job now. I, and I don't think they're out to, to, to try to, to ruin the economy. I do think that they believe sure. that we are in such an economic bind that we have to have interest rates, that the natural rate, which is called the, the normalized real rate of interest is low, perhaps even negative to get households and businesses willing to borrow and invest in capital projects. So it, it, which gets back to Fels's other point. He's basically saying we have too much stuff. Like it is too easy to make stuff. And because we're so hyper productive that people don't want to own, you don't need as much anymore. And so there isn't as much need for companies to invest in capital things. So they don't have the need for capital. And that that's sort of the other side of the equation, too much savings, but there isn't a demand for the savings other than companies buying back their stock. Yeah. Nothing to do with it. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, this could be a secular issue. We basically, we have enough. And this is something Keynes talked about in the 30s. So what would happen when, you know, we're so efficient that, you know, we, we can make everything we need, you know, his thought we wouldn't have to do much work. You know, we'd work 20 hours a week. So it's, it's a really, these are some secular trends that are, we need to keep an eye on. You're starting to sound like Andrew Yang. You next going to give us all a thousand dollars. Is that your next deal? 
Uh, not me, no, but uh, <laughs> the central banks could. <laughs> yeah, money, you know, that, it, they caught, the reason why they caught a magic money tree. I mean, that, that's what money, yeah. I mean, money is just trust. And, you know, banks create money out of thin air. Central banks do it. And it's, it's money is a real, it, it's weird when it comes to money. It yeah. really is. No, it really Fascinating, is. but uh, bizarro. Well, and that's why we have a show, right? We both have shows. <laughs> it's because exactly. it's fascinating. Uh, what is our takeaway from this, though? What's the bottom line here for us and our savings, David? The bottom line is uh, we're going to have to save more, a higher percent of our income, because it doesn't look like you know, interest rates are going higher, uh, which means you know, potentially um, you know, other asset classes that compete with interest rates you know, the companies don't have to pay as high dividends, perhaps, because, you know, rates are so low. So it, it we just, you know, rents, for example, on rental properties aren't, um, you know, once you get the initial asset push up, you know, as rates fall, other assets go up in value. But at some point, you get to where they might not appreciate either. And so, you know, as a percentage of our income, we're just going to have to save more money. That's funny. That was my, my takeaway was this pushes more people toward equities to get capital appreciation. But on the scary side too, the other thing this does is this creates, uh, as I'm sure you've seen before, this creates yield chasing, right? Where people get into asset classes with these higher and higher yields where they're taking risk in, in, um, you know, in, uh, junk bonds, uh, as an example, because of the fact that they really want these high rates and they're not taking into account what can happen in those markets. So I think that creates real risk, but it also it also makes people start thinking about capital appreciation instead of dividends. Well, they do. And, and then the flip side of this whole thing is what if we get to the point, this is sort of the Peter Schiff's of the world, where people start to lose faith in central banks, decide that they actually don't know what they're doing. And we believe that, you know, there's too much money being created to where people suddenly freak out. And then you could get a huge spike in interest rates. You know, if, if nobody, nobody wants to buy government bonds anymore, with the exception of, of the central banks, I mean, it could go the other way, too. And that's why with bonds, you know, the primary reason you own bonds is for income. Right. I mean, they're, they can be used to speculate that rates will rise and fall. But, you know, in the current environment. If you're getting two and a half percent on cash and you get two percent on 10 year treasury bonds, you don't buy 10 year treasury bonds unless you think rates are going to fall. And that's that's not that's speculation. That's not investing from an income perspective. I think that's a great place to leave that discussion. In just a moment, uh, David and I are going to both have our, what we call our big idea, which combines the two of these. How the heck are we going to talk about financial regrets and negative interest rates and find some overarching theme? Well, you're about to find out in just a second. But first, Tiller is a spreadsheet program that I love, even though I'm not a big spreadsheet guy. David, you a big spreadsheet guy? I am a big spreadsheet guy. I, I thought you would be. I, I am not. However, I love Tiller because of the fact that Tiller starts off with templates. So if somebody can create the template for me ahead of time, and then I can simplify the template even more, that's what I like about Tiller. The problem that I've had with a lot of apps that I've used, and we've had a lot of them on the Stacking Benjamin show on our Friday FinTech segment, is it they'll be 90% great, and then there's 10% of this app that I absolutely detest, and I want to get rid of it, but I can't. Well, with Tiller, 
I get any template that I want. And there are tons of them at Tiller. And then I can take them and because it's a spreadsheet and this is the key because it's a spreadsheet, I can get rid of the parts that I don't like. So I can get more in the weeds if I want, or I can uh, simplify an area or just eliminate looking at that altogether. It's all up to me. So, and then on top of it, what I love about Tiller is that every day my spreadsheet is automatically updated from all of the places where we have money. So from our savings account to our checking account, any money that we put on credit cards that we have, uh, our investments all go into the I'll go into the tiller sheet. We just press one button. Normally you can check it out for one month. If you go to just straightforward to tiller.com, but using our link, you're going to get two months to kick the tires. So thanks to tiller for doing that. Here's how you get that. If you head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash tiller, T I L L E R, uh, they'll give you two months of a trial instead of one. And obviously also if you use our link, that helps the show. So thanks for that. Uh, everybody who's used our link. All right. It is that time, David. It's the moment of truth. How the moment of, I'm trying to build this up uh, probably too far. Uh, you want to go first since you're the guest? Yeah, I'll go first. Yeah, I'll go first. Deal. Although, you know, you're probably going to deflate it because <laughs> the takeaway <laughs> is, you know, the, the first article, the regret is not saving enough for retirement, not starting too soon enough. And, and that's the takeaway. Save more money because returns for asset classes will probably be lower going forward than they have been historically. And that's going to require us to, to save more money. And there it is. Uh, mine is a little s- similar, but also slightly different, of course. Uh, mine is to know your battle. Like I look at the, I look at the overarching theme in these two. It's to know which battle you're fighting and which one, which, which one you're not in, in the, the, the first piece, when it comes to regrets, I felt like these are all the important things in life. These five areas that she talks about are really important that people wish they'd done sooner. And then I think about all the reasons why we didn't do those. You know why? Cause we were, we were doing all these things that weren't nearly as important as these five things. We let all this stuff get, away, get in the way of doing the important stuff. So a mentor of mine once talked about the difference between urgent and important, right? There's every day you wake up, there are fires that are urgent, but the question you have to ask yourself is, are they important? And knowing your battle though, I think also applies very much to this idea of, of negative interest rates. If, if you're a long-term investor, you need to be looking for capital appreciation. And hopefully then this doesn't hit you as hard. It's going to, negative interest rates will hit everybody. However, I think if you're in the right type of investment based on your time frame, you're much less likely to uh, get caught up in a storm that doesn't affect you. So I think the first thing to do, David, here with both of these pieces is know what your battle is instead of trying to fight every battle. Cause you see this all the time. People read the headlines and they think, Oh, I got to invest in tech stocks. Well, what tech stocks have to do with you? Maybe, maybe oh, nothing. Well, absolutely. I mean, I, it comes down to, you know, focus, focus on asset classes. So understand how bonds work, understand what stock works, what are the return drivers and just have multiple return drivers in your portfolio. So you're not just dependent on, on one asset class. I know a website, I know a podcast that teaches people that like on a weekly basis, 
If only, if only such a podcast existed, David. <laughs> tell everybody seriously. Well, tell everybody what's going on at Money several, for. <laughs> but uh, yes, uh, Money for the Rest of Us is the name of my podcast, and I actually also have a book coming out in October with uh, by the same name that basically teaches people how to invest. It's ten questions to master successful investing. What do you need to know? Ask before you make any investment, be it stocks, bonds, gold, cryptocurrencies, or technology stocks. I was glad you were happy you were able to hang out with us again today, man. And uh, we'll link to uh, we'll link to David and Money for the Rest of Us at our show notes page at moneywithfriendspodcast.com. All right, buddy, that's going to do it for today. Thanks a lot for everybody who hung. You can tell we do this live. Thanks a lot to everybody who hung out with us live today on Facebook. Thanks to everybody listening at home. Anybody who's left us a review of the show. Thank you so much. We'll see you back here next time at Money with Friends. This show is created and hosted by Joe Salcihai and Bobby Rebel, and is a joint venture of BRK Media LLC and Stacking Benjamins LLC, copyright 2019. Our engineer is the amazing Steve Stewart. And for a list of our friends who appear on the podcast, head to our website, moneywithfriendspodcast.com. You can also check out our schedule for upcoming recording sessions so you can join us and be part of the show. As with anything, remember you shouldn't take advice from any of us or any other video or podcast without first talking to your financial advisor and that the people in this episode are here for your and their entertainment purposes only. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and we'll see you back here next time with a real episode of Money with Friends. <laughs>